Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants be your might. You just heard the left-wing anthem, The International, which was the sort of march surrounding the labor movement of the First and Second International Working Men's Associations. These are going to be the organizations right at the center of our podcast, so please enjoy a few more bars. It was the summer of 1876 in Philadelphia, which meant celebration. The kickoff of the Centennial Exhibition in May brought Ulysses S. Grant, Emperor Pedro of Brazil, and over 180,000 others to town. There's nothing like celebrating 100 years of the States United. With the U.S. Civil War only a little over a decade in the rearview mirror, the Republic's survival was a major accomplishment. The Centennial Exhibition's integration of the World's Fair and the 100th anniversary of the founding let visitors dive into an orgy of celebrated patriotism, American industrial might, and all backdropped by the bounties of increasing globalization. At stake was more than just a good time had by everyone, but the music, fireworks, and food would help with that. The full title of the centennial was the International Exhibition of Arts, Manufactures, and Products of the Soil and Mine, which gives you an idea of the breadth of the exposition. Showing off the growing industrial and agricultural prowess of America could create new trade opportunities, and locally, in Philly, businesses could turn a nice profit off the many visitors in town. Amidst the revelry, pomp, and circumstance of July 1876's exhibition, a group of ten men found a way to darken the summer festivities. These men were in town to put to rest a global effort not represented at the Centennial Exhibition, namely the World Socialist Party. This was the final meeting of the International Working Men's Association, known today as the First International. The idea was workers of the world united. European labor conflict, the sour symptoms of industrialization, and European autocracy had spawned the First International in the continent. Among the socialist thinkers of the First International, you have a bearded German known as Karl Marx, a guy you might have heard of, and an anarchist named Mikhail Bakunin, who we'll talk about as well. The abuses of industrialization, which included gross mistreatment of laborers, starvation wages, and repressive government going hand-in-hand with industry, had galvanized these guys. The first international, these folks believed, was the Panacea, an international socialist party leading workers to a new age. But though the international had struck fear into the heart of European autocracy, come to America in an attempt at renewal, and given the spies of European dictators uh, job security, The organization teetered. I'm sure that the representatives of the international understood the bitter irony of slaying their globalist workers' party during a celebration of worldwide industrial capitalism. This piece is about the events leading to that last pathetic meeting of the First International during the biggest party in America. As far as history goes, the meeting is easily forgotten. I mean, I could say it is forgotten. The story is by nature anticlimactic. I've already given away the ending. Think of it as the socialist version of the phenomenal book Devil in the White City about a serial killer at the Chicago World's Fair. In this case, it's the socialists murdering their own organization at the Philly World's Fair. The workers' movement in the United States has been covered by people like Howard Zinn in the People's History of the United States, which uh, many have read at this point. One day, I hope to do a podcast on the Battle of Blair Mountain, a momentous and violent labor insurrection in 1921 by West Virginia coal miners. 
The fight for labor rights for American slaves is one of the greatest stories ever told. And local to me, Pennsylvania has its Molly Maguires in the coal industry. But this much smaller story involves a lot of little-known players making philosophical and practical moves in the 19th century. The story involves cross-Atlantic conversations and clashes between American and European intellectuals. Most of all, it encompasses a longtime area of interest for me, which is why organizations are born, how they are or aren't useful, and why they die. Here's a few sources inspiring this podcast. I assume that folks listening to my history podcast here will probably have run into Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, which is currently engaged with an excellent rundown of the Russian Revolution. Mike Duncan actually mentions the meeting we're going to cover in passing, and his work is a major inspiration for this piece. The other major source is a book called The First International in America by a man named Samuel Bernstein, which covers a lot of these events we're going to discuss. I'm going to quote it over and over again. You're going to hear Bernstein quite a bit. As usual, I'll post some show notes detailing my sources for you. So what first, we, I mean, we're going to have to cover something first, right? Which is what is the first international? Why was it founded? How did Karl Marx get involved? And most importantly, how did the international get over here to the United States, right? This is international but then it ended up here. So what happened? Part one of this podcast will trace the evolution of the first international in Europe. Part two will rewind a bit to cover the American labor movement and the cast of labor rabble rousers we have stateside. And part three will bring us back to July of 1876 to hear the death rattle of our idealists' hopes and dreams. Part one, European nightmares. Let me start by putting it this way. Mid-19th century Europe made the modern era look like paradise. For the laborer trying to make do, it was an age of industry and secret police, where powerful autocrats, whether king or emperor, resisted democratic representation at every turn. Work, that is, you know, a day job, involved long hours and squalor. You did not have freedom of speech. Starting a newspaper could get you jailed, exiled, or worse. If you weren't in industry, you were in farming, and most of that farming was hand-to-mouth unless you were the landed nobility with its interminable control over huge swaths of ancestral holdings. But imagination ran wild, too. The French and American revolutions had proven that freer societies were possible. All at once, in 1848, about 30 years prior to the events in Philadelphia we're going to get to, people decided that they'd had enough and tried to overthrow their repressive regimes. The revolutionary year of 1848 saw simultaneous revolutions and workers' movements rage across Europe from France to Germany to Austria and Hungary. Now, not every regime was made alike. I'm going to gloss over it here, but some were definitely worse than others. But I think if you were to take a look at European leadership in the 1840s, you'd find a lot of -of out-of-touch leaders who ignored the calamitous side effects of the industrialization course they'd taken industrialization had bent society in strange ways. That's not to say industrialization had been bad by itself. Factories, division of labor, commodity standards, and all the rest of those tools of industrial trades had led to the creation of all sorts of miracle commodities. Textiles, so clothes and fabrics, were all of a sudden way cheaper. The standard of living for the average person rose as goods got less expensive. You could afford things in a store. If you moved to a city, you could get a job in a factory and get a decent wage. Many times it beat being a farmer. But problems came along with that rise in the standard of living. Suddenly, and kind of surprisingly to everybody involved, cities drew people, and they packed into the cheapest places they could find, like slums. 
Artisans, people who had made goods by hand for centuries, went out of business. Wages in many factories were awful for the artisans who had been working before on these things. Workdays were long. Safety wasn't a consideration. Infamously, child labor became a necessary part of a family's financial survival. In the intellectual underground revolutionary movement active in 1848, they read theorists like Proudhon, the man who coined that old socialist chestnut, property is theft. To further and unfairly simplify the labor anarchist philosophers like Proudhon, he doesn't really believe in private property. He believed in collective ownership, worker communes, and the kind of labor organizing that went right in the face of the imperial, monarchical, and oligarchical nature of European power in the 19th century. Socialism, at least from my view in this early period of its intellectual existence, involved upending the social strata that had appeared when industrialization's abuses became weeping sores on the face of European societies. Building on German philosophy and labor philosophy, and specifically Hegel and his ideas on society, a young philosopher named Karl Marx and his friend Friedrich Engels published a pamphlet in 1848 called The Communist Manifesto, outlining the historical materialist conception of history. So let me explain historical materialism. It's the idea that history is a matter of class struggle, that labor creates all wealth, and that the workers of the world could and should unite. Some of them would. Revolt and change was in the air. Those uprisings of 1848 responded in a straightforward and violent way to industrialization's shortcomings and failures. But the crackdown by capital and monarchy and empire came swift. What followed the labor uprisings of 1848 was an era of repression that allowed the powerful of Europe to consolidate their hold over industry and government. Reforms were introduced, of course, but in the view of those who had fought in the streets in 1848, some of them fighting with nothing more than their fists, reform was not enough. The years passed after 1848. Those short-lived reforms didn't change much about the realities of industrial society. Squalor still ruled. The intellectual revolutionary movement, pummeled into the dirt after 1848, started to gain a voice and a following once again in those years afterwards. Revolutionary newspapers whispered that labor struggles weren't a country-by-country -country affair. An international conspiracy of money was leveraged against the working population, is what they said. And look... In my view, and I'm trying to be impartial here, they weren't wrong. Look at a flowchart of European monarchy, and you're going to see a lot of the same landed families appearing again and again and again. German nobility married into British nobility, married into French nobility, and the jokes about incest among royalty came from a very real place. Under the control of these uh, <clears throat> inbred families was the power of industry. For socialists, the world suffered under the thumb of this system. Invites went out across Europe for a meeting in September of 1864. Malcontents organized an as-yet-unnamed confederation of international actors that would discuss labor rights and this new thing they were going to call socialism. The groups showing up to this meeting included prominent labor theorists, social critics, rabble-rousers, activists, and the motley crew that believed in one overarching thesis— Things were not right in the working world. Almost as an afterthought and needing some German representation, the conveners of the meeting invited a journalist and thinker named Karl Marx. Marx, being an accomplished writer, soon became the written voice of this international group that they named the International Working Men's Association, 
which I will continue to call the First International or the International for simplicity's sake. This kickoff meeting of the First International gave Marx the chance to really flex his philosophical muscle. And in the general address of the meeting, which is a sort of white paper discussing the organization's work, Marx starts with the following sentence, quote, It is a great fact that the misery of the working masses has not diminished from 1848 to 1864, and yet this period is unrivaled for the development of its industry and the growth of its commerce, end quote. Marx ends the piece with the call to action, quote-unquote, proletarians of all countries, unite. A global struggle against the excesses of industrial capitalism, they thought, had begun. To give you an idea of the work they were doing, the First International adopted, for instance, the eight-hour workday position. They integrated women into the organization as an equal part of the laboring classes, and we'll talk a lot about the integration of women into this. The International spoke strongly against the worst autocratic regimes of the time, like Napoleon III. The International's drive and its penmanship under Marx struck a nerve in Europe. For socialist urban intelligentsia, the International put into words the frustrations of the current moment. For labor organizers and trade unionists, it was a group that could finally push forward the strikes and unrest needed to bring about change. For the big bosses and vile autocrats, the International was a terrifying organization with revolutionary potential. Adherents flocked from across Europe and began to feel freer with their writing and speaking than at any time since 1848. Bernstein, whose book I mentioned being a great guide to the First International in the American context, said that the First International arose, quote, out of the belief that the changing order could be directed towards the welfare of all. All agreed that the preliminary was to unite under one banner those living on their wages, end quote. So I think it's important to show wage labor here, because when you think about the farm life, you're working on a farm, you're hand to mouth, you're not working for a wage, you're working for the produce, right? You're going to be able to produce produce that you might be able to sell. Wage labor was this kind of a new concept. So in any case, it was an organization that was designed to bring to bear the full range of workers' concerns into this cohesive political party. That was the purpose of the international. But Bernstein says, quote, the way to do it was the source of angry disputes, end quote. Right. So while noble in its origins, it didn't take long for the first international to run into problems. As a kid... I remember trying to fill up a glass of water to the top where the, the surface tension would make it almost you know tip over the brim. I'm sure you did a similar thing if you were like me. I did it on the carpet or some other place I wasn't supposed to. So let's take this analogy here for a minute. I also remembered that you had to do this slowly, right? You couldn't just blast water into the cup and get it to fill up all the way. In fact, if you use a hose to fill a drinking glass, you'll find that there's almost no water in it left over. Idealism, to me, is like a cup that's bubbling up with hope, but the passion of the ideals can really cause the struggle to lose itself and just completely empty out the cup. That's my, that's my strained analogy for idealism. In any case, here you have a group of people who spent a long time thinking and a lot of ink penning ideas about the crimes and inequalities of an industrialist society. They all agreed something had to change, but when you put idealists into a room together, the annoying question of how starts to arise. That's where the international's real problems began, on the question of how. Marx posited that the historical progression of societies toward capitalism created and intensified class tensions. 
the advent of capitalist-owned industrial society had created a class of industrial workers which he named the proletariat. Their lives were nasty, brutish, and short. They worked for a wage, and that wage was buying their labor, so to say. For Marx, it was inevitable that the laboring classes would and should overthrow the current order, and they would do this by establishing a dictatorship of the proletariat, a transitional government that meant to make sure that the means of production were in the hands of the working class. What that means is the owners of the means of production, the owners of the tools, the owners of the factories, the fat cats and the bosses, those folks would be overthrown and the working classes would take control of the factories and the means of production. Once the dictatorship of the proletariat set to right the inequities of industrialization, a freer world of worker-owned production would emerge. This would be Marx's socialism. For Marx, this uh, first international was a way to organize all of these workers together to usher in that dictatorship of the proletariat to take control of the means of production through politics. But a Russian anarchist named Mikhail Bakunin had joined the First International too. He was an anarchist who'd faced down the harsh Russian justice system and lived to talk about it. Bakunin did not trust governments. He believed in freedom, above all, as a natural state of being, saying, quote, I'm a fanatical lover of liberty. I do not mean that formal liberty which is dispensed, measured out, and regulated by the state. No, I mean the only liberty worth the name, the liberty which implies the full development of all material, intellectual, and moral capacities latent in every one of us. End quote. Bakunin thought Marx's game plan of establishing the dictator of the proletariat through politics would end in disaster. Those who engaged in the revolution wouldn't evolve into a new society, but they would stay in a dictatorship. The bitter class struggle would thrive, according to Bakunin. Quote, no dictatorship can have any other aim but that of self-perpetuation, and it can be only beget slavery and the people tolerating it. Freedoms can be created only by freedom, that is, by a universal rebellion on the part of the people and free organization of the toiling masses from the bottom up. End quote. The trash-talking that began as a result of this rift within the First International was epic. Marx thought Bakunin was impulsive. He saw Bakunin as wasting time. Bakunin's belief in the revolutionary potential of, say, peasant classes, those are, you know, very poor farmers, criminals, apparently Bakunin advocated for criminals, the homeless, and destitute to also participate in the revolution. All of this was useless and would end in failure. Marx also didn't find Bakunin's use of secret societies as being all that useful either. Apparently, Bakunin liked to create secret clubs that would get together and discuss revolution. Bakunin, on the other hand, accused Marx of authoritarianism and went so far as to question Marx's Jewish ancestry directly. Yes, when you are losing an argument, start questioning the other person's race. Good, good one. Bernstein, the author we've been drawing a lot of this narrative from, might have a bias against Bakunin, which I have to read for your entertainment here. And I'm sorry, the uh, my printer barely works, so I might screw this up. Anyway, quote, Mikhail Bakunin was half-child, half-demon. Everything about him seemed extreme. His elephantine size, his elation and optimism, and his generosity that knew no distinction between thine and mine. He was undisciplined and reckless, capable of make-believe and boldness, of artifice and artlessness. His prejudices were as petty as his heroism was sublime. He could excite admiration and acrimony. He was unable to sit long enough with an idea to fathom it. 
As Russell says he was impotent, he jumped from one project to another without completing any. His discursive and unfinished articles and essays are an illustration. Destruction was his object. In the first days of a revolution, he was a dynamo. He drafted programs, raced hither and yon, decrees in hand, shouting and gesticulating, while cigarette smoke erupted from him as from a volcano. When barricades were abandoned for deliberation, the raging giant was but dead weight. Alexander Herzen said that Bakunin took the second month of pregnancy for the ninth. End quote. Right. How about that? <laughs> Beyond the personal sniping, Marx and Bakunin's philosophies would just never really see eye to eye for any number of reasons. One paper I was reading by Ann Robertson said that Marx and Bakunin simply would never get along because the basis of their philosophical thoughts were just oceans apart. For Bakunin, freedom was a natural state of being meaning that any class, even the most destitute in society, could desire to become free, thus eventually become revolutionary. You have to contrast this to Marx, because Marx thought that the revolutionary class would only arise from the wage-laboring class, so those groups working in factories, because they were the ones historically primed to create politically active worker parties. You had a sort of natural law historicism in Bakunin's thought versus a class historicism, which was Marx's signature dialectical materialism. The anarchist-socialist disagreement came to a head at a meeting in The Hague in September of 1872. Socialists had come to town, and the people of Holland were terrified. The city went under martial law in response to the socialist arrival. Rumors had spread that the socialists were desperados and violent criminals. Children were warned to come home at night for fear of what the degenerate delegates to the First International might do. This was all a little rich, given that the International's main players, like Marx, were fat alcoholics. But it should tell you the fear that the European elite had for the International. On the other hand, intelligence officers of various European nations held back from shuttering the conference. My guess is that they thought the First International might be in town to strangle itself to death. They were right. Now, there's also plenty of speculation that they themselves got involved, you know, put agents provocateur in there to mess things up. I think that's definitely an open possibility. At the Hague meeting, the International put an endorsement of Marx's ideas to a vote. The first International, in Marx's view, was to be the workers' party that would overtake the state, or indeed, all states. The international would eclipse the outdated and counterproductive tribalist model of the nation-state to become a global movement shaking off aristocratic control over society. Workers of the world uniting meant overturning the flow of wealth from the labor power of the individual to the capitalist and the corrupt state. Bakunin argued against the measure. He and his anarchist faction maintained that the dictatorship of the proletariat would become nothing but the dictatorship of the few over the many. Freedom, they believed, was paramount, and with freedom would come a purer form of socialism. But the representatives of the international voted in Marx's favor. When Bakunin and his allies protested the results, and I get the impression they were kind of rude about it, the international kicked the anarchists to the curb and ejected them from the conference. Marx had effectively made the first international the vector for his strain of socialist thought. Bakunin later commented on the proceedings, saying the following, quote, Justice, good sense, honesty, and the honor of the international brazenly rejected, its very existence endangered. All this the better to establish the dictatorship of Mr. Marx. It is not only criminal, it is sheer madness. End quote. 
Bakunin and his allies decided that they were the real international, that the first international had faceplanted and they needed to recreate it. So the anarchists started a different international. Yes, the anarchists started their own organization. I'm, I'm aware of the irony. And if this drama is all starting to resemble kids on the playground saying, you're not the real club, I'm taking my friends over here to have the real club. Well, you're absolutely right. Except that issue was society's future. And these guys were putting ideas out there that would change the world. Especially in the case of Marx, who is a household name, though Bakunin still has his adherence too. Bakunin's version of the First International went on to have its own pitiful history that I won't bore you with. What I do want to bore you with is the trajectory of Marx's First International after this rift with Bakunin, because they kept on going. They didn't just dissolve because the anarchists left. In fact, they moved to America. To give you the context you need to understand the American franchise of the International, I'm going to rewind a moment. I need to take you back through American history to talk about why the stage was set for Marx's piece of the First International to land here, and then to finally die in Philadelphia. Part 2. American Dreams So you've just heard about Europe in the 19th century and how it went through violent upheavals that influenced how worker parties did business. America in the mid-19th century went through unbelievable changes as well. The period defined America ever after. The United States Civil War ripped the country apart in the 1860s with devastating social and economic results. There was Reconstruction, the ill-fated attempt at rebuilding and reconciling the country's two halves. America struggled westward the whole time, building railroads at a ferocious pace under the Gilded Age industrialists, while older and more established East Coast cities looked for workers for the meat grinder of the industrial economy. Into this 19th century mix came European transplants, waves of immigrants seeking out the fortune that the New World could provide. And some of these immigrant communities began to spread some of the socialist ideas we've been talking about. These were the forerunner groups of the First International. Now don't get me wrong, these ideas did not go viral. These workers' parties didn't last long or have the relevance they did in Europe, but they were out there. On the rolls of these parties were immigrants from Italy, Cuba, France, Hungary, and Poland. They were as varied as America can be. Groups like Young America, a small secret society set up in 1845, evolved into the larger Social Reform Association that had influence in Philly, Newark, St. Louis, and Baltimore, among other places. There was the Working Men's League that was active from 1850 to 55, focused on land reform, benefiting farmers. Someday I'd like to do a podcast on the Grange and the other agricultural land reform orgs because they have a lot to do with the labor history of the United States and its pastoral roots. There was also the New York Communist Club, made up mostly of German immigrants. Now, I want to dwell on that last one, the German Communist Club, because of a particular member, a guy who's lived through these spasms of American industrial growth spurts. His name was Friedrich Sorge. Okay, now, here's where we get into pronunciation. If I haven't mauled everything already, there's a couple different ways to pronounce his name. Here's friend of the podcast, Jen pronouncing it for me. She actually speaks German and, uh, you know, it's helped out here by providing the real pronunciation. I'm going to play that now. And because I am a, a Yankee, I do not speak German. I took German in high school. That doesn't mean I speak it. I am going to just call him Zorga. 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 That, that seems to be the easiest for me to pronounce. Okay. All that aside. 
As the so-called father of American socialism, Zorga carried the ideas of Karl Marx to the Americans who would listen to him, and rose to prominence as the first international's point man in America. Born the son of a Protestant parson in 1828, Zorga grew up in Germany, learning history and literature from his clerical father. Dad was active in liberal circles, which included being a stop on the Underground Railroad of revolutionary European activism. Polish activists often used Zorga's residence as a safe house, which gave young Friedrich an early education in revolutionary politics, but also educated him on the dangers of taking up the cause. Those, uh, those dangerous experiences, well, none of that dissuaded him from the radical life. At age 19, Zorga joined those revolutions of 1848 that I mentioned before, taking up arms against the authoritarian governments in his native state of Saxony. His side lost. German radicals tried again. They lost again. When the German government sentenced Zorga to death, he spent time fleeing from one safe house to another across Europe before finally cutting his losses and heading to the land of opportunity, the United States. Just to give you an idea of what Zorga looked like, because I think the mental image of these characters is important, he wore thin spectacles and had a round face with a cropped beard. Zorga was apparently a fairly neat dresser, too, which might be important later on. In the United States, Zorga found himself in an exile community of 48ers, other Europeans who had spent time at the barricades in 1848. You see, exile is how they used to do things in the 19th century. You find a lot of different figures exiled, then returning to their home country, then exiled again. Napoleon comes to mind. Uh, national borders felt much more fluid in that day. These days, if you try to foment armed revolution, they throw you in prison there, and that's that. It's too much paperwork to send you overseas, extradition takes years, and so on. But if anyone thought that exile would dull the edge of these revolutionaries, they were wrong. While in the 1850s, Zorga got married and settled into life as a music teacher in Hoboken, New Jersey, he also kept honing his revolutionary credentials. In his spare time, Zorga and his German 48er Confederates got together to form that New York Communist Club. I didn't dig too deep for information on the Communist Club. I also don't have the German to do it. But if it was like other socialist intellectual clubs of the era, it was a lot of guys trading literature back and forth, discussing the radical ideas of the moment and that type of thing. Groups like the Communist Club stayed active in the 1850s, but fell into a rut as the 1860s arrived. A skirmish called the U.S. Civil War created a choice for new immigrants. Which side were you going to take? Imagine you're an immigrant from another country, making your life in America, in this case, the greater New York area. How do you choose to react to the U.S. Civil War, to secession, and to slavery? Well, the choice was clear to these 48ers. German-born Americans turned out for the Union Army, coming in at 200,000 troops. That's enormous. Many of Sorga's New York German buddies were likely in that mix, and why not? As far as labor disputes go, you can't get any bigger than resolving the question of slavery. Over in Europe, the First International actually put out a statement on the U.S. Civil War in 1864 written by Marx. It congratulated Americans on re-electing Lincoln and linked socialism with the downfall of slave owners. Socialism had broadly thrown in with the Union. As the Civil War ended and Reconstruction began, you start to see a resurgence in the labor movement. Soldiers were going back to work. Industry retold to go back to peacetime activity. And with all the death and destruction, workers were in short supply. 
you had groups come into being like the National Labor Union, which was the forerunner of the AFL surviving today as the AFL-CIO. The National Labor Union knew about Marx and the first international across the pond. Oh, yeah. The language barriers weren't too steep, given the number of labor organizers like Zorgo who spoke German. The will was there to create an international partnership between American labor and European radical intellectuals. But the green folding stuff got in the way. You know, money. Or lack of it. The socialists had no money. Multiple times I see that the First International couldn't get an American labor delegate to its European conferences. And that was because of the cost of the trip. Cross-Atlantic communication also didn't have the legs it does today, which made organizing a global movement pretty difficult. Finally, by 1869, you can see delegates from the American labor groups making their way over to meet with those intellectuals. Giants like Marx, the Proudhonists, and the rising anarchist faction. Like any conference, Americans attending the first international in Brussels in 68 or Basel in 69 will get an earful from the European theorists while also getting practical advice on fomenting labor struggle back home. Word got around that the Americans were now joined up with the first international. Labor organizing had, as a result, hit a new, more respectable level. Americans were now involved in a global socialist movement that seemed to be on the rise. The Boston Daily News stated that the interchange between American socialists and the First International was, quote, an omen of change, and this change must be understood and met. Let old politicians be wise, end quote. Friedrich Zorga made his move to prominence in 1869, just as the International really felt like it was taking off in America. During his time in the U.S., he'd gotten deep into Karl Marx's vision of socialism, I have to imagine that Zorga, between violin lessons or whatever, had feasted on every pamphlet and paper from the continent that he could get his hands on. Zorga was a prolific writer and contributed to plenty of socialist newspapers floating around during the period. American newspapers like Arbeiter Union published sections of Marxist writings and other European socialist ephemera. Before long, Zorga's readings turned to correspondence. He became a pen pal of Marx's and made a name for himself as the U.S.'s foremost expert on Marxism. In 1869, it seems Marx contacted Zorga and asked him to spearhead the founding of a sort of franchise for the international in America. Zorga dived right in. Evolving out of that New York Communist Club and its associated groups, Zorga and his friends founded Section 1 of the First International in New York City. It only numbered about 50 people at first, but they've been active, and they gathered a formidable library of socialist texts, pamphlets, all that kind of stuff aimed at workers, and they were able to work in a multitude of languages to serve these diverse constituencies of new labor organizing. Section 1 wasn't a little literary club anymore. Zorga had graduated. Section 1 had contact with all kinds of labor groups, shoe workers, bricklayers, carpenters, and furniture makers. They had notable influence in helping the formation of the Cigar Makers International Union. They also formed a Negro League and may have facilitated the National Colored Labor Conventions, sending a black delegate overseas to the First International, which was a real first. Section 1 saw itself as a sort of political and intellectual foundation for striking labor groups. Zorga himself, in his writings, would say the following about the German emigre community in America and its activism. Quote, 
A fresh breeze of indignation against the increasing exploitation of the working class and against the increasingly insolvent corruption of the bourgeois classes blew through the German labor associations. It spurred them to consideration of their own conditions, as well as social conditions in general, and gave birth to a true core of class consciousness, socialist-minded German-speaking proletarians who achieved a great deal. However, in New York, and in a certain sense the whole United States, the history of the activities of German workers in this country during the time is combined in a renowned way with the name of Section 1. So to translate out of a socialist speak, so to say, Zorga believed that the conditions on the ground, which involved the exploitation of the American working class, had created a surge of activity amongst his own German-American community. The First International had gotten its legs in the New World. Zorga and his German-American friends kicked off Greater American Interest. A French-American group formed Section 2. In 1870, the two sections coordinated on support of labor unions and opposition to the French War in Europe. A third section appeared, made of Czech immigrants. More appeared, like the German-speaking Sections 4 and 5 in Chicago, Section 8 in the suburbs of New York. I see mention of a Section 26 in Philly, which is made up of manual workers, white-collar workers, with teachers and a smattering of medical and legal professionals joining the ranks. There would, at the height of the First International, be over 40 sections and more than 5,000 active members. Membership really skyrocketed during the bloody destruction of the Paris Commune in 1871. For those who don't know about the... uh, crazy conflagrations in Europe in the 19th century. Let me explain the Paris Commune. Think of it as an attempt at self-rule by the abused radical population of Paris, who seized control of the government and began to espouse radical ideas like the abolition of child labor and the ownership of businesses by workers. For about two months, the Paris Commune attempted to make work their vision of a better society. It ended in horror. In something that's called the Bloody Week, a reactionary French army retook Paris and set to executions that resulted in the deaths of something like 10 to 20,000 people. Karl Marx thought the Paris Commune was the finest example, albeit short-lived and bloody, of a dictatorship of the proletariat. American socialists saw it as the rallying cry for the oppressed. The violent reaction by the French government only cemented the socialist opinion that they had to organize to fix the current order, that reform was not enough. 1871 must have felt like a rush if you were active in these circles. I wanted to read an account by Zorga of what it felt like to be in meetings of the International and its affiliated unions. What was it like to be in the room? Here's how he talks about it. Quote, Now began a period of brilliant accomplishment, a period of the highest achievement that a labor organization can reach. Almost without exception, real, true wage earners and craftsmen of all possible trades, these proletarians, competed with each other in learning economics, in overcoming the most difficult economic and philosophical problems. Among the hundreds of members who belonged to the Union between 1869 and 1874 was hardly one who had not read Marx, and surely there was more than a dozen that had absorbed and worked out the most difficult sentences and definitions and were armed against the attacks of the hot and petite bourgeoisie, the radicals or reformists, end quote. And he um, here is referring to the General German Labor Union, which I believe was affiliated with the International, at least through Zorga. Anyway, I'm uh, going to quote some more. Quote, 
It was a real joy to be at union meetings, which were held every Sunday night in a low, badly ventilated room in the 10th Ward Hotel at the corner of Broome and Forsyth Streets in New York. The class consciousness of these workers had gone into their flesh and blood and had awakened in them a true sense of brotherhood that inspired all their deeds toward their class comrades generally and toward their union brothers particularly, a sense of brotherhood that did not express itself in words but specifically in deeds. They had an exemplary discipline, a discipline that secured for the Union over a long period something just short of a leading role in the American labor movement. End quote. Sections themselves had autonomy. They could elect their own officers, conduct business as they saw fit, and set their own language rules. The melting pot of American immigration had turned labor organizing into a series of independent sections aligned in message and philosophy, working toward a common goal of the emancipation of the worker on a global scale. America had become a major force in the global international party seeking to overthrow the capitalist order. But 1871, following that bloody Paris Commune, was probably the high watermark for the first international. Can you guess why? I'll wait. I'll wait a beat. That's right, idealism. Idealism overfloweth just like it did in Europe. And to me, the part coming up is the most interesting part of this story. When confronted by the next moves on the long path forward to liberation, the American First International franchise started to buckle under stress. Bernstein really puts it best. What I like about his analysis is that he shows the outward projection that the American sections of the First International portrayed, while also commenting on what it looked like inside. Governments lived in fear of the organization. I mean, you saw the, uh, the Boston newspapers talking about it. However, quote, The association was less powerful than its enemies believed. Its defense of subject people, its anti-war declarations, its aid to strikers, and its siding with movements that dissented from the established order, these policies and practices inevitably gave an appearance of strength. But the facts tell a different story. It was torn inwardly by factions. Far from being enormously wealthy, as the press presented it, it was forever short of funds. Arrears on dues from branches were a common complaint, and the general council was often behind in rent in its modest headquarters, end quote. But hey, they're not in it to get rich, right? These are socialists we're talking about. They're, they're not here to make friends, right? They're here to get the job done. The American sections of the international also started to chafe with the European Central Committee, Remember, the International thought of itself as the worldwide political party struggling against an international capitalist conspiracy. It needed to have a platform with planks developed and agreed to by constituents. Marx and the leadership had decided that because of the First International's rapid growth and popularity, the party needed a centralized bureaucracy in order to function effectively. That was a problem for the Americans, though. Sending word from America asking the Central Committee in London for permission to do things like support a strike started to cause obvious friction. Essentially, the party had gotten so big that it had formed a bureaucracy. Not only a bureaucracy, but a cross-Atlantic bureaucracy. It only got worse from there. One tiff in particular involved our friend Zorga, who got pretty upset with the Central Committee's useless bureaucratic moves. In a move that he likely took as a personal attack, leadership of the First International Central Committee lamented indigenous American recruitment, or lack thereof. Did this mean Native Americans? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, they meant Anglo-Americans, right? The original settlers, that type of thing. Our friend Zorga is, of course, not indigenous in that sense. 
Why, the Central Committee asked, were so many of the new sections just made up of European immigrants? Why was Zorga's franchise recruiting foreigners to the American labor cause? Where were the natives? Zorga replied sternly. He said that the first international leadership didn't understand American life at all. He said, quote, Working men from other countries arriving here do not come with the intention of residing but temporarily here. They are in no wise regarded as foreigners or simple residents, but as citizens, the only distinction being made by calling them sometimes adopted citizens, end quote. Zorga went on to say, quote, The term foreigner, therefore, does not apply to us at all, end quote. Now, this uh, us was actually highlighted and italicized in the text I read. I think that was original, but I was reading a secondary source, not his original letters, because, again, I don't speak any German. Anyway, us, I think Zorga meant, was the Germans, the Czechs, the Poles, that type of thing. They were born in another land, but they were Americans. Not only had the Europeans insulted the recruiting effort by the American sections, but they'd also insulted Zorga's own lifelong commitment to the cause and to America. With the sniping back and forth of European leadership, I feel like this was the beginning of a schism. Zorga had, in his own way, already become a New Jerseyan. That's a joke for people who live in Pennsylvania, and they understand. No offense meant my New Jersey listeners. In addition to fighting with the Europeans, the American sections also started to suffer from a lack of labor problems. Yes, the supply of labor issues seemed to exceed the demand to fix them. Labor issues were not appearing at the frequency that the American sections of the First International wanted them to. One explanation went back to Zorga's comments about American immigration. People arrived in America to seek a fortune in a country devoted to seeking fortunes. Americans could visualize a path to riches. Now, in my view, this is because America did not yet have the cemented social strata that appeared in Europe and spurred on the revolutionary behavior. You didn't have landed classes that were hundreds, sometimes thousands of years old. There was still economic mobility in America, still land to grab that wasn't under the control of a permanent class of landowners. And I'll add parenthetically that Native American claims on land in America didn't really come into any of these discussions at all. Friedrich Zorga, for instance, could flee Europe under the pain of death, arrive in America, start a family, and begin a career teaching music. He could spend his days showing students the joys of Beethoven or Wagner, not toiling in a field someplace or in the depths of a European factory. It's hard to organize labor when there is a real or imagined chance of gaining wealth, prestige, and stability. The most important internal conflict of the American sections came right as its popularity peaked. Zorga, writing in retrospect and definitely proud of what he had created, said that the International had become stylish. Quote, the International was at the time undoubtedly a fad, end quote. Zorga believes that this attracted never-do-wells, people who were less serious about the socialist enterprise than he and the OG sections. Zorga would forever regret these people getting involved because it proved fatal to the American International. You're going to recognize what's coming up. This conflict between the faddish newcomers and the old guard like Zorga turned out to be a miniature imitation of that Marx-Bakunin conflict. Remember that about half hour ago, the communist-anarchist conflict? There was an anarchist Section 12 of the American International that came to blows with Zorga's Marxist Section 1, the old German communist club. But it's worth noting that this fatal anarchist-communist clash in America happened before the Marx-Bakunin split became realized. I actually haven't seen this talked about much, probably because the scale of it was so small compared to the Marx-Bakunin fight. Here's how it all went down. 
One of the most colorful characters in that anarchist mix of the New York Section 12 was Victoria Woodhull, a latecomer to the socialist cause by any measure. You know the Dos Equis commercial, the one with the most interesting man in the world? You know that commercial? Victoria Woodhull is the most interesting woman in the world. She truly deserves her own podcast. When asked about why she insisted on being so combative throughout her lifetime, Woodhull said, Agitation of thought is the beginning of wisdom. Hence, I like it. In pictures, Woodhull dresses to the nines and has this far-off gaze that comes through in photos. It seems to cut right off the page. Woodhull scandalized everyone, communists and capitalists alike, by starting a career as one of the first female stock and commodity brokers. People had no idea how to deal with this freewheeling woman. She and her sister earned themselves the moniker the Queens of Finance or the Bewitching Brokers. She used the novelty of her and her sister's business as its own form of advertising. She and her sister also tried to democratize investment by catering the trade to women who were almost a non-existent force when it came to the investment game, as well as other non-traditional investors, so people who were sort of in the working trades, that type of thing. As you can guess, engaging in capitalist modes of ownership and trade was verboten in socialist circles. But she was in Section 12. While aligned with Section 12's broader anarchist leanings, Woodhull also managed to raise a lot of scandal by using the International's Anarchist Section to promote Free Love, a political program emphasizing relationships and child-rearing outside the confining bonds of marriage. Now, when you look at socialist literature, Free Love wasn't entirely out of left field. One of my favorite socialist thinkers to uh, study and read about, just because of the wackiness of his ideas, was Fourier, who said that Free Love was needed to have a free society. But this was the 1870s. Free love was not on the mind during Woodhull's time. Now, Woodhull also supported women's suffrage, which ranked about as high on the list of priorities in these predominantly men's socialist clubs as free love. And she started her own newspaper with her precocious sister to emphasize all of these political positions. She topped off suffrage and free love and gold trading by saying that there should be a universal global language and that capital and labor should work together rather than be at odds with one another. All right, this program, this is not going to work with the international. Spoiler alert. Section 1, Zorga's New York section, publicly admonished Victoria for her unorthodox stances. A working class cigar packer named Fred Bolt, who you'll hear about more as this story goes on, said of this factional showdown in November of 1871, quote, All of this talk of Section 12 is folly, and we don't want their foolish notions credited as views of this society. This nonsense which they talk of, female suffrage and free love, may do consider in the future, but the question that interests us working men is that of labor and wages, end quote. Friedrich Sorge called members of the Section 12 quacks. But I don't think Woodhull could process criticism. I don't think it was in her nature. Her work went on, probably because she hadn't taken a vow of poverty unlike everyone else. Woodhull had the money to do things like publish her pamphlets and push her radical philosophies. As the international gained traction in America, Woodhull's women's rights debates came right to the forefront. At the November gathering of the American International Sections in 1871, members more or less had to align themselves to labor rights or women's rights, which made for a bad look by pretty much everyone. If you supported the women's rights contingent, you didn't take seriously the fight for labor rights. If you supported the workers' rights, you were deliberately sidelining your female comrades. The idealists involved at the International considered themselves free thinkers. 
but Freedom had introduced more issues than some of the membership had bargained for. Another argument erupted over whether those who were wage workers had more of a vote than those who didn't work for a wage, which was probably a way to sideline Woodhull and other people of means. Bernstein notes that police infiltrators likely also contributed to the arguments of November 1871, but he doesn't name anyone specific. If agents provocateur had infiltrated the proceedings, I don't think they had to work that hard. As a result of doctrinal arguments, American First International sections split into two contingents, each with its own governance structure and philosophical thrust. The schism of the American First International had begun. Word is that when he heard about what had happened, Marx was furious. He ordered everyone to get along. They did not. The number of sections in the American First International rose to 43, but only because sections were starting to split into smaller, warring groups. In May of 1872, just months before his own fateful day at The Hague with the Bakunin anarchists, Karl Marx trashed Victoria Woodhull's viewpoints, saying that she ran a, quote, humbug cult, end quote, and that she spouted ballyhoo. Did I, did I mention that Karl Marx was an epic trash talker? But the damage was done. Now, I'm not going to say that Victoria Woodhull's actions were precisely what created the schism in the American sections, but I think it's telling that Marx took the time to insult her, and specifically her. When Victoria Woodhull announced that she was going to run for president in the 1872 election under the Equal Rights Party with Frederick Douglass as her running mate, yes, that Frederick Douglass, it set off another scandal of panic in the First International. I imagine it was pretty shocking to see a free love gold bug lining up with an abolitionist black thinker to take on the American political establishment long before the First International was ready to become the global labor party. Whether through the inflexibility of the communist section one, the bold and maybe reckless anarchism of Woodhull in section 12, or any number of reasons mentioned, the American First International went into fatal decline. Sections dissolved, disorganization spread, with warring congresses fighting for control. They met in buildings just blocks from one another, but refused to talk to each other. Membership plummeted. As the American First International's decline accelerated, the European contingent exploded into the Marxist Bakuninist crisis in September of 1872. Zorga was there to see it happen. I have to imagine that he watched in total dismay as the anarchist, libertarian types disputed the positions of the Marxist contingent. Accusations flew around saying that foreign spies were either being invited into the international or already were there. Paranoia about spooks is a kind of autoimmune disease that always plagues these groups. By the end of the Hague Congress, the first international had jettisoned its anarchists and gone it alone. But Zorga was as surprised as anyone when he learned the final outcome of the 72 Hague Congress. The First International, or at least the communist wing that remained, decided to move to America. That's right. In Marx's view, the First International was under too many threats. Bakuninist anarchists, for one, as well as the spies of the European monarchs, but also British trade unionists, French Proudhonists, and anyone not towing the Marxist line. And for a second, let's assume that's all true. The move to America might seem wise in that context. But in my opinion, it was all a bit of a pretense. According to those who have studied Marx's life, he already seemed to have given up on that role in the First International's General Council. Maybe to him, this was all a lost cause after the split. The Bakuninist departure seemed to have planted seeds of doubt among the socialists and intendants, and maybe even in Marx's mind. Were there spies in their midst? What if the organization was compromised? What if we turn into a dictatorship? 
Further, was Marxism going to be enough to see the workers' movement to its intended end? Would power indeed corrupt the proletariat, just like Bakunin said? Marx pushed for the First International to be seated in America, and that's exactly what happened. I have to wonder what Zorga thought about this. Here is his mentor, Marx, giving Zorga a surprise leadership role in the now-divided First International. And from what I can tell, he was he, Zorga did not know this was coming. Zorga had a chance to lead the worldwide party. It was a promotion. But I've been the point man, the executive of a failing enterprise. I've done it before. And unless you're totally delusional, you know it's sinking. The pit in your stomach you get when you know the organization you're leading will not exist for much longer is unmistakable. Part of me feels bad for Zorga at this point. We've all been there. I remember reading about a cynical feminist theory of organizational leadership called the Glass Cliff. The researchers who coined the term tried to show that women are often put into leadership positions at firms that are failing. Theresa May was cited as uh, the prime minister of the UK as soon as Brexit votes were happening. Marissa Meyer took over Yahoo as it faced competition from Google. The theory goes that a woman is put in charge of a failing enterprise on purpose, letting them act as a scapegoat for something likely to fail. And maybe maybe on purpose is the wrong word for it. Maybe it's a a sort of reaction that happens within society when the organization is failing is you throw somebody else in there. I sort of see a parallel here. This is less of a feminist interpretation of the First International than a xenophobic take on the glass cliff idea. Marx was exiting the First International just as it was splitting apart. And he sort of just passed the First International off to Friedrich Zorgo, yes, a German, but in that class of German immigrants that the First International of Europe seemed to think were, well, maybe a distraction, not really American, perhaps not European enough either. I don't know. What do you think? Glass cliff theory applied here. Then again, Marx and Zorga have become friends over the years, so I might be reading too much into this. I'm always happy to hear evidence to the contrary. It's just that Zorga not really knowing ahead of time that he'd be in charge of the International's move to America seems sketchy. What truly killed any possibility of a rebound for the American sections was the Depression of 1873. Railroad boom had gone to railroad bust. 100,000 businesses failed in America, unemployment reached 14%, and the Depression of 1873 rivaled the Great Depression a few generations later in severity and scope. In fact, before the Great Depression of 1929 was a thing, people called the 1873 crash the Great Depression. 1873's crash is often held to be responsible for the end of Reconstruction in the American South, as the government, the federal government anyway, lacked the resources from that point on to economically and militarily occupy the former Confederate states. The First International would have loved the support of the largest workers' combinations, milling, iron, steel railroads, but how do you convince a lot of workers in those industries to risk their jobs, their paychecks, and their families' well-being when there's no job to go to when things get sour. The 1873 crash hadn't created more opportunities for labor, but less. One interesting aspect of the 73 crash I saw was that Philadelphia lost its prominence as the industrial capital of America, with New York gaining prominence as J.P. Morgan really revved up his operation. And this is a great place to put in a shameless plug for my podcast on J.P. Morgan called The First Thing is Character, which you can find in the podcast archives. J.P. Morgan would pick up the pieces of the 1873 crash in order to become richer and cement his place in the American combination business. All right, enough shilling for my own podcast. I really like Bernstein's description of the American First International at this juncture. I mean, 
Bernstein really knows how to paint a picture here. Remember, he's the one that called Bakunin a demon. All right, and I quote. Oh, wait, hold on. Before I quote, I'm sitting here with a light in my super hot office, and my printout, I can barely read it. So anyway, I'm going to do the best I can. So quote, for real this time, quote, Toward the end of 1873, the first international was a wasted body. The North American Federation alone held together, and it too was disintegrating. Its domestic quarrels were public knowledge. Disagreements on trade, unionism, and political action, it was shown, almost split sections in cities like Chicago, St. Louis, and Philadelphia. Indifference to the call to nominate candidates for the general council only exhibited the depth of the decline. The Geneva Congress of September 1873, to recall one of its decisions, had voted to retain the General Council in New York and made North American Federation responsible for its choice. The endeavor to observe this obligation revealed a greater want of interest than had been imagined. The Federal Council could neither assemble the New York sections for the purpose of designating nominees nor persuade others to do so. Only a minority replied, end quote. Now, look, I've glossed over a few of these details about groups and congresses and the bureaucracy of the party, but you get the gist. Overseas meetings, in this case Geneva of 1873, ended in organizational chaos. Sections had stopped responding to letters. By the end of 1873, what was left of the official international had dropped in membership to 750 persons. Zorga, who'd been elected general secretary, the man in charge of the American operation, probably felt like the rug had been pulled out from under him. Our cigar maker who'd called out Victoria Woodhull, Bolt, remember him? He had risen to a leadership position in the dying party and said that the international, quote, has been more loosened by the Bakuninists and the bourgeoisie than generally known. He then added that the American international had disintegrated so much that its condition was that of, quote, a child under age, end quote. And just to put cigar making in perspective in the 19th century to tell you why Bolt was important, these aren't guys who sat in a shop all day rolling up leaves. This is an excerpt of a paper I found about the cigar maker trade, which mentions Bolt and its roster of different cigar making labor organizers of the era. The cigar maker is a wanderer. Cigar makers regarded their traveling as an assertion of their independence and their freedom to control their own time. It's sort of a dead trade now, but at the time, pretty important. Cigar maker Bolt put together what can only be described as an anti-intellectual contingent of what remained of the First International, and that anti-intellectual contingent was aimed against Zorga. To his face, nobody would doubt Zorga's commitment, but many called him dictatorial or too nice, which don't, doesn't sound like could be in the same person. But the anti-intellectual faction saw the influence of Marx and the failures of Marx as a matter of white-collar intellectual types getting in the way of real labor organizing. Meanwhile, Zorga, the emigre music teacher, dressed like a professor and talked about Marx all the time. While he of course had a real understanding of Marxism and had been involved in the international from the beginning, many thought Zorga lacked the judgment to leave the movement. And there were whispers in certain corners that Zorga was an Austrian spy. The Austro-Hungarian Empire had an extensive spy network, so this wasn't out of the question, but, I mean, it was probably a lot of paranoia. I doubt the Empire was really interested in the death rattle of the First International, not when they had so much bigger fish to fry in Europe, like trying to manage two kingdoms at once. Meanwhile, Zorga took desperate organizational steps to try and save it all. He reorganized palsied committees, he tried hard to get the socialist newspapers up and running, and to his credit, 
Zorga even got a few new sections to open up. What's ironic about all this squabbling and infighting in the communist intellectual circles is that the labor movement went on. Spoiler alert, Victoria Woodhull and Frederick Douglass did not win and usher in free love, universal language, capital worker, combination, anarchism. To their credit, they made their run at it. But the re-elected Ulysses S. Grant administration was sclerotic and didn't seem to have its legs under it. Grant refused to use federal troops to break strikes, so labor groups outside the First International saw baby step advances in their cherished labor rights issues like the eight-hour workday. Life went on without the First International sections to support it. Zorga himself was the first to suggest that the International close its doors in 1874 with a motion to dissolve the General Council and let himself and a small group work in an archival capacity. Rather than be a cause for conversation among membership, it caused even more suspicion. Concerns about Zorga's status as a spy came into the open. These were leveled by the anti-intellectual opponents and cigar maker Bolt. Those in Bolt's section were eventually shouted down and expelled from the organization. The organizational home of those anti-intellectuals, which was Section 1, yes, the same New York Communist Club, well, that dissolved. When Zorga tried to quit, his comrades kept him on. But everyone must have known the end was near. Why not have the captain go down with the ship? In a lot of ways, the Marxist ideologies that founded the First International were going out of style, especially in the American context. They just weren't relevant anymore. For instance, the International really revealed itself as an anachronism when delegates from the weakened First International attended a labor conference in Pittsburgh in the spring of 1876. The conference, put on by various rising labor organizations like the Knights of Labor and the Social Democratic Workingmen's Party, seemed like the wave of the future. The conference found a lot of small farmers and lumbermen. These weren't the toiling proletarian industrial class, but American entrepreneurs working in the hinterlands. The urban industrial classes, the iron and steel workers, were there as well, along with railroad men and furniture makers, but the group had coalesced around immediate issues like wages and hours. Bernstein points out that labor organizers weren't so sure about these hardcore socialists from the international. These guys went around passing out pamphlets and spoke in philosophical terms and tried to recruit based on something called the dictatorship of the proletariat. What? For instance, labor organizers were, quote, astonished at the idea of abolishing the wage system, end quote. The anti-monopolists at this labor conference, also called the Greenbackers, were not enthusiastic about socialist purity. International parties that would overthrow the bourgeoisie? What is that French word? I don't understand. Not for them. The intellectual tradition of Marxism had become baggage, stale, out of touch. Part 3. Dreaming On. Finally, we made it. Back to the top of the podcast. The summer of 76. 1876, that is. 1876 was even more special for Philly, as we now know, because the city had been rocked only three years past by that 1873 crash. The Centennial Exhibition was a chance at economic renewal, a chance to show off, maybe a chance to breathe some life into the city. Gosh, we gotta beat New York, right? Philadelphia could bring renewed interest to depressed American industry and the embattled worker. It was a combination of 100 years of America and a World's Fair. 76 would be a year to remember. Enormous fundraising efforts by the U.S. government, the Philadelphia city government, and any number of private groups made sure that the United States would not embarrass itself on the world stage. 
That rivalry with New York, well, that hit it big. New York had its own version of the World's Fair in 1853, and Philadelphia had to impress. It had to overtake. The Centennial Committee erected a half dozen buildings in a 400-acre plot of Fairmount Park. Visitors could tour the largest building in the world, the main exhibition building, a structure encompassing 21.5 acres, a structure so large it had a dedicated entrance for carriages. Today, the architecture of the main exhibition building might be mistaken for an aircraft hangar, except for stand after stand after stand of exhibits about mining, metallurgy, manufacturing, education, and science. A constellation of international art pieces sat in the art gallery building, today known as the Memorial Hall of the Police Touch Museum, and the last extant building in this exhibition. There was a horticultural hall, braced around growing things, and the Women's Pavilion, a progressive part of the exhibition designed to showcase women's philanthropy, contributions to the fine arts, and human ecology and women's economics. Think lots of kitchen gadgets. Among the many visitors to town was a French delegation of labor organizers. They were there to attend the centennial and kind of see what was going on globally and maybe what was going on in Philadelphia. Folks around America knew that French communists were trouble. Just look at what happened in Paris in 1871, that bloody week, remember that, Paris Commune? The French were nothing but trouble. Suspicions ran high that the French were at the centennial to stir up American labor. Turned out the French were minding their P's and Q's, and you can see that any possible labor spoiler for the centennial was being examined under a microscope. But what really wasn't being examined was the First International. It's one of history's great ironies that the First International came to this very place at this very time to pass into history. On display were the products of the very economic forces that the First International sought to reform. The beaten and bruised First International scheduled their last Congress for July 15th. Unfortunately, my weather almanac only goes back to 1930, so I don't have record of what that day's weather looked like. But having just lived through yet another southeastern Pennsylvania July, I can tell you that July 15th in Philadelphia is no joke. It's the humidity that gets you here. Reports say that Philadelphia heat got so bad that attendance to the centennial went down drastically. The only reprieve you get really is an afternoon thunderstorm, which can sometimes set up a nice evening. I don't know where the meeting was held either. I'd really love to know. If I had to guess, you'd be able to find the, the answer to that question in Zorga's archives. Rest assured that the city buzzed around them. Let me read from Bernstein's book about this sad little meeting. Quote, Ten delegates constituting the Conference of the International met quietly July 15th. No reporters packed the entrance, nor were people on hand to mourn the going of the once mighty organization. There was a funereal air about the meeting, as if the ten had come to act as pallbearers. The association, which statesmen and monarchs had credited with limitless forces, was passing out unnoticed and virtually unlamented. Among the delegates were Otto Weidemeyer, I think, and F.A. Zorga. You know that guy. Weidemeyer had moved from St. Louis to Pittsburgh, where he agitated among workers in heavy, heavy industry. Zorga, founder and defender of the International in America, was still as indefatigable as when he had first set up the Central Committee in December of 1870. Bearded and bespectacled, with eyes that focused straight as one, as if they were X-raying his thoughts, he looked more like a diplomat than a socialist propagandist. Also present were Kurt Speyer, a cabinet maker, and Albert Curlin, a German worker in St. Louis. Within the next few years, he shifted his allegiance to anarchism. End quote. So yeah, interesting things going on there. I'm reminded of that meme of the guys carrying the casket. Um, <laughs> that is the first international. 
Um, interesting that Albert Curlin, the German worker, shifted his allegiance to anarchism later. Kind of tells you a sign of the times. Four resolutions were on the table. First, abolishing the General Council, which Zorga said he wanted to do years back. The second and third resolutions called upon the remnants of the party to come back together when the time was right. And the last resolution made Zorga and another comrade the keepers of the archives. All four resolutions passed quickly. There was $76 left in their account, which they had to parse out. And with that filthy capital gone, the First International was done. All that was left was the epitaph. Here's the last declaration written in German by the International. This is in an even smaller print. I don't know why I printed it out this way. Okay, quote, Fellow workers, the General Conference of Delegates of Philadelphia has abolished the General Council of the International Working Men's Association. Thus, the visible bond of the association no longer exists. The international is dead, exclamation point. The bourgeoisie of all countries will cry out with scorn and joy and with trumpet blasts will announce the resolutions of the conference as documentary proof of the defeat of the international labor movement. Let not the shrieking of our enemies divert us from our purpose. We have given up the international in the light of the political situation in Europe, but in recompense, we, the advanced workers of the entire civilized world, acknowledging and defending its principles. We are confident our fellow workers in Europe will shortly set right their national affairs and then will be in a position to put aside the barriers separating them from the workers in other parts of the world. Comrades, you who have been loyal to the international with love and courage, I think that, yeah, that says love, love and courage will find means of widening the circle of followers even in the absence of an organization. You will add new partisans who will go on struggling in order to reach the God of our association. No, the goal of our association. The comrades of America pledge themselves to guard and foster the aims of the international until conditions are more congenial for bringing together the workers of all countries in common station. The cry will then resound again and louder. Working men of all countries unite. End quote. Sorry for that mangled reading here. While the International had been moved to America to save it from insurrection and spycraft, it had a fatal disease. I'm not sure what you call that disease. Maybe an excess of spirit, an excess of idealism. It's when you're so sure of your beliefs that you're willing to scuttle the cause to preserve them. Zorga, as much of an expert Marxist as anyone, had been unable to keep the music going. Marx had gone AWOL. Bakunin had presided over his own failing splinter group. Victoria Woodhull had run for president and the communist dream died on the vine. Remember back to my strained analogy about a glass of water. The glass had been filled too fast and was running out. Not all was lost after the death of the international, though, if you concerned yourself with labor. Zorga and other delegates now freed from their commitments to the international intended what was being called the Unity Congress, or what was going to be known as the Working Men's Party of the United States. This wasn't a revolutionary party, but a party based upon improving the economic situation of its members through political action. Kind of sounds like the same thing as the international, but not quite, because this is really the Working Men's Party of the United States. This is not the International Working Men's Association. They would do no overthrowing, but instead make the people's will known at the ballot box. They followed Marx, but did not want to act as if they could hasten Marx's political eschatology. It might feel like splitting hairs, but the Working Men's Party of the United States was an American-born, American-bred, and it was where the first international had been a European and global enterprise at its core. It, it was American, right down to its, uh, its roots. And you might even call the Working Men's Party moderate. I know, moderate. 
Today, the Democratic Socialists of America, which endorsed Bernie Sanders for president in, what, 2016 and 2020, and whose membership includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, is one of the successors of the Working Men's Party of the United States. I'm just an observer here. I have no dog in this fight. But the DSA, as far as I can tell, has ditched virtually all the Marxist philosophy in favor of an even more watered-down version than the Working Men's Party of the United States was in 1876. There's a lot of talk about Medicare for all, working families, high-speed rail, funding educational system, advocating for people to join class action lawsuits. But think about those Marxists from the 19th century and what they were striving for. And imagine what they think of people calling themselves socialists today. Would the international think of something like high-speed rail as being a socialist enterprise? Would they think that universal health care and universal health insurance was the purview of the socialist? Times change, though. Not every organization belongs in its own time. Some arise before they're meant to. Some come around too late. So many fail, probably most of them. Karl Marx died in 1883 after finishing his magnum opus, the three-volume tome Capital, and he's widely regarded to be one of the most important thinkers in human history. Bakunin died July 1st, 1876, only weeks before the Philadelphia meeting where the First International dissolved. For his part, Friedrich Zorga kept up with Marx through everything. They remained friends and intellectual compatriots until Marx's death. Zorga would retire from socialist politics around 1888 after leading some strikes and trying to continue his work. I tried to imagine him in his waistcoat out on the streets, humming Beethoven to himself, maybe carrying a sign. Zorga had come to an impasse with the Lasallians, a socialist philosophy at odds with Zorga's deep Marxist beliefs. The music teacher bowed out and he went back to writing and studying and publishing in newspapers. You also find Zorga in contact with Friedrich Engels, who came over to New Jersey to visit Zorga, which should show you the importance Zorga had in the Marxist circles. Zorga would forever be the father of Marxism in America. He died in 1906 in his home in New Jersey, and it was in an ironic twist, and this is a little bit of a digression, that his nephew, Richard Zorga, ended up being the highly accomplished spy, posed as a German journalist, but was actually working for the Russians in Japan. This nephew was actually executed by the Japanese for espionage in 1944, which sounds like another podcast, right? But it suffices to say that Zorga was an academic at heart, and he was a man who was comfortable in the trenches of labor organizing, but in my opinion, he wasn't the spy. He wasn't the guy that was going to sell out Marxist ideology. That was for his, uh, his great-nephew. The first international would be brought back from the dead as a second international in 1889. At its very first meeting, and early in the agenda, it banned anarchists and anarchist philosophy from the proceedings. There's a, the lesson here about organization and passion, about admitting that you're wrong and listening to other ideas. It's interesting to me that the American First International splintered into Marxist and anarchist thought right before the European one did, and how really this was a, a war of ideas going across the Atlantic and through all these labor circles. And one of my favorite quotes of all time is the artist George Herms. He does uh, like found trash art, but it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, quote, remember kids, it's not secondhand smoke that kills, it's secondhand thoughts. Have you ever heard the self-reflective joke about office politics that goes like this, this one? 
If you don't know who the office asshole is, it's probably you. The lesson for me in reading about socialism's failure to organize itself is that if your ideology is so radical that you find yourself cursing and crushing your opposition, you might be the problem. Thanks for listening to this digression into the history of communism in America. It was fun reading from sources I never ever consulted, investigating histories I didn't know were out there. And it has local flavor for me, being in the general Philadelphia vicinity, although way out there. It still bothers me that I can't figure out where the meeting took place, but maybe some intrepid researcher will be able to do that by tapping into the Zorga archives. What's interesting is that I was finding some of his archives were recovered from Russian libraries, and I almost wonder if Lenin, uh, during the Russian Revolution, had picked up those uh, picked up those archives and brought them over, since the international was such a big deal for uh, communism in Russia. Now on to some show housekeeping here. I will be taking a hiatus from Tinderbox coming up because while I appreciate my 11 listeners, you're all mean a lot to me, I will be raising up another listener to Tinderbox, a tiny human who will be required to memorize all my episodes. Yes, my wife and I are expecting and I expect to take some time off, probably resuming in the winter, but who knows, you know, I'm going to take it as it comes. In the meantime, you might notice changes in the old podcast. I'll be putting together a theme song and going through the tedious and painful process of editing the master files to include this song as well as ad breaks. This is painstaking stuff, but it might be just the kind of thing to do when I'm not able to sleep at three in the morning. Speaking of ad breaks, did you hear any? No, you didn't. You got an earful about the history of socialism without any ads, right? That socialist would be proud of me. I don't have advertisers on this show, and I'd love it if you could just spend a few seconds rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you're listening. Just super appreciate it. Just go there and give me an honest rating. If you like my writing, if you want to read this or send it to somebody maybe in text form, uh, go over to mercenarypen.substack.com. Again, mercenarypen.substack.com, where I post original content as well as transcripts of the show. I'm also on Twitter at mercenary underscore pen if you'd like to talk. And the email is tinderboxpodcast at gmail.com. Write me with your ideas, thoughts, and corrections. Until next time, stay working out there in the tinderbox.